Hi, my name is Andrew Tong. I'm the Executive Manager at Cobalt Blue Holdings. Cobalt Blue Holdings is developing the Broken Hill Cobalt Project in Australia. We're aiming to be in the top five global cobalt producers, ex-Africa. We're aiming to start our project in 2025, so we've got a couple more years to go. But currently we're in the development phase, running a feasibility study. Andrew, thank you very much. Um, I see we're both wearing the same set of headphones, but yours are a much, a much jazzier colour. Yes, that's correct, Merlin. My kids uh, picked this gaming headphone for me. Excellent. Um, now, I've, I've seen a couple of the Cobalt Blue holding interviews with um, Joe and Matt. Um, I haven't seen you on screen before. Could you give a, a quick background to yourself, to the viewers, and just say kind of um, what you've been up to and what you're doing now? Sure. My background is process engineering or the metallurgy side. I've been with Cobalt Blue since it started in 2017. I came on board to run their scoping study. Um, at the time, it was under a joint venture structure, and I've been with them ever since then. So I've worked through all of the technical side for the company, uh, scoping study, pre-feasibility study, and now currently we're doing the feasibility study. The big ticket item this last year through 2021 has been to build and run successfully our pilot plant. So I've been spending quite a bit of time out at Broken Hill. I live in Sydney. Uh, which is where the headquarters for the company is. Uh, but over the next couple of years, we're really going to be building our team and transitioning to a workforce out at Broken Hill. Okay, great. And um, uh, the chairman's statement and the CEO's presentation came out on Friday. I've had a quick um, look through that. And, and um, the, the pilot plant has been producing, remind me um, kind of at what tonnage rate, and, and uh, um, you're, you're just moving now to the demonstration plant, which will be 3,000 tonnes per annum of, or will aim to produce 3,000 tonnes of concentrate. Is that there, or end product? Is that correct? Yes, well, and we had our uh, AGM on Friday. Uh, it's always good uh, get together for the uh, 12 months and just reflect on all of our progress. For our pilot plant, uh, this year we've built that. We've treated nearly 90 tonnes of ore through that plant. Uh, we've produced a number of samples of mixed hydroxide cobalt with some nickel in the hydroxide form as an intermediate. We've produced some cobalt sulfate. We've dispatched that to a number of parties uh, who have been evaluating that and giving us feedback or um, commentary around the content of those products. Uh, the feed rate for our pilot plant is very similar to next year's proposed demonstration plant, running at 200 kilos an hour of feed material into the plant. Uh, but the big difference is that the pilot has really been a testing scenario, so batch operations, and next year we're going to run it as a continuous plant 24-7, looking to start that around February, March, and running that for about four or five months next year. So pilot plant, 90 tonne of feed, demonstration plant, 3,000 tonne of feed of ore. That'll produce 600 tonne of concentrate, and that concentrate is what will be fed in at 200 kilos an hour through our plant. The big aim that we're trying to do here is obviously uh, confirm that the process flow sheet works for the material. Uh, we've successfully done that at Pilot, so we're very confident in the flow sheet. But the big um, ticket item for us is to produce bulk samples that we can then use as a basis for offtake negotiations next year. Forgive me, I've got a small brain. Um, I need to unpack some of those numbers a bit. So the, you've been feeding 90... Um, the pilot plant was a 90-ton batch. Yes, we did that through the course of the year in about four or five uh, operations. So a couple of weeks on, a 
couple of weeks off, couple of weeks on, couple of weeks off. Collectively, 90 tonne uh, went through our pilot plant. And now we're going to upgrade that to 3,000 tonne next year. And the, um, so the amount going through the plant, so, so to, 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 to do the demonstration plant or the demo plant, you don't need to change the, um, the mechanics as such. There are no capital items in terms of kind of expanding throughput or kind of um, it, the, the physical infrastructure doesn't change. It's just the joining it up together to make it continuous process. That's the key thing, is it? Uh, there is um, a small amount of upgrades, but they're all related, as you said, just to joining it up or having the continuity. Uh, so some upgrades to some of the control system, some upgrades to some of the feeder hoppers. Those are the sorts of things that we're upgrading so that we can have continuity of operations 24-7. Okay. And the the material that you've mined, this 3,000 tonnes, is it, um, where's, where's it from? And, you know, how... Your end product is going to be so um, chemically sensitive. You've got to get these the specs exactly right in your end product. Where do you? How do you select your your starter product? Your the, the, from the pit. You know, is it? How do you know that that's representative of what you're going to be putting through the mine later? We'll take yes, it from the mine. So we have yes. In terms of our deposits, we've got a crescent shape to the deposits, and when we go commercially, we're going to have. Uh, at least three open cut pits, possibly four. Um, in terms of the deposits, we've got two main deposits that represent roughly the first 10 years and then the second 10 years for, for 20 years. And then we've got a small deposit which will feed a little bit into both of those two parts of the project. But essentially, almost all of the ore for the first 10 years will come from one pit, just supplemented a little bit with some from the second pit. The bulk sample, which we're about to extract for our demonstration plant, largely comes from the first pit that will represent the first 10 years of our commercial operation. So we're about to commence that in the coming weeks. We're going to collect that as an underground sample uh, because it's much more cost effective and give us better representativity. We can go along the seam or along the deposit and then collect all from a few different places and build that and so we can not completely cover sample representativity, but give it our best effort within the budget and the constraints of the, uh, the pilot plant or the demonstration plant. Uh, so we're going to be collecting material along the deposit, that 3,000 tonne of material. And have you, you, you've obviously got the underground uh, developments already done. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, uh, we're I, just commencing the, the portal and the box cut. They're just starting uh, next week. Oh, wow. But I thought it was going to be an open pit mine. So is, is this, is this ah, a, yes. a, a specific portal for, for the bulk sample? Yes, only just for the bulk sample. Because otherwise, to get representative ore uh, in an open cut scenario, we would have had to open up a lot of the area and take material from different parts. And that's just not as cost effective as going straight into the hill and then opening up laterally and being able to take some material out for the bulk sample. So for the bulk sample, we're doing underground and we can come in at sort of yeah, 50 or 60 metres below the surface much more easily, whereas in the open cut, we'd have to come just to the top section of the ore body. And what's the capex of, of taking that back? The, or what's, have you, kind of, you, you must have established the cost of taking that, that sample. Yes, it's a couple of million dollars. Okay. And therefore, if you're coming from the top... Um, 
when you're when you're mining it what's the, what's the weathering profile like of the rock you know what's the transition does it go straight i mean how quickly are you into fresh sulfides um and how much um sure. the weathering profile of the, how much of it, is there a mixing zone is there a weathering profile how much do you have to strip off uh for our project um being very close to broken hill we're 20 kilometers west of broken hill very stable geologically very old old rocks around that area uh very low weathering uh the environment is essentially arid or desert um the rainfall is is yeah uh, there's 10 times more evaporation than rainfall per year so very very low weathering of the sulfide materials in fact we actually have some of the sulfide outcropping at surface but typically the base of oxidation would be five meters 10 meters um, in some areas it might be a bit more like 15 meters but essentially it's about a 10 meter uh, base of oxidation profile across the cap of these hills. The hills are around 30 or 40 metres above the prevailing um, relative land surface. So in those hills, a, a small cap of oxide and then straight into fresh sulphide, there's essentially no transition. So there's no um, metamorphized or secondary sulphides. It's pyrite or it's no pyrite. Our main mineral is pyrite. That's what hosts the cobalt and the pyrite is mixed in with a gang of silica or albite or quartz material. So we're essentially a two mineral ore body, the silica gang and pyrite. And once you've removed that um, oxide cap, you're essentially in large um, deposit of sulfide material interspersed with, with, the, with the gang material. Uh, so very low amounts of overburden to remove, essentially straight into the deposit. Um, in terms of our mining scenario that we're proposing, uh, very large uh, mining blocks, 10 by 10 by 20 or 10 by 10 by 30 for a mining block. Uh, we're looking at benches of at least 10 metres or a bit bigger, so very large scale um, bulk mining methodology. And um, what, are you mining about 3 million tonnes per annum um, and what's the strip ratio? Uh, so our project, we're aiming to have 6 million tonne of ore each year uh, being mined. And overall, the course of the project, the strip ratio is three to one. Out of the 6 million tonne of ore, we're then aiming to convert that to 1 million tonne of concentrate. So around about an 80% rejection of material as tailings or waste material and 20% mass pool. In terms of all the test work that we've done, um, the gravity spiral work, the float work, uh, at you know, full-size commercial gravity spirals, we've typically had 90 to 95% recovery of pyrite to the concentrate. It's a very high recovery and excellent mass rejection. Uh, and so we end up with a pyrite concentrate of about 80 to 85% pyrite in that concentrate, which represents around 90 to 95% recovery of cobalt and pyrite to that concentrate. So the, the reason why I said... Um, three million tons of ore was because I, f I saw in the presentation that you're looking at 20 year mine life and you've got about 53 million tons measured and indicated. So it was 17 years, it was 17 years of, um, um, of mine life and you've got 53 million tons of measured and indicated. And so I divided one by the other and I came up with three million tons per annum. Um, um, but you're going double that rate. So does that mean your mine life is, um, whatever it is, eight and a half years? Uh, no, no, the, the mine life is 17. Um, what we're looking at is the difference between the 
um, in terms of the, the mining reserve versus the mining production target, if I can use that, that term production target uh, in accordance with, with the chalk code and, and all those sorts of codes for reporting. Our production target gives us the 20 year or 18 year mine life. Uh, so we're closer to 80, 87 million tonnes, I think it is, or 80, 85 million tonnes um, at that scale. But obviously the question that you're really getting at is the measured indicated in third categories for the mineral resource and how they then convert to proven or probable or production target for the mining case. And those are things that we're working through in terms of our feasibility study and um, trying to bring as much material into the reportable categories uh, so then it's easier for, for uh, analysts to do their, um, their their numbers on us. Okay. And I, 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 you know, I haven't even, I've been thinking about the process so much, I haven't even thought about the geology. Um, what, do you, what, what, what do you call it? Um, you know, is there a deposit type? Is it just a, um, you know, apart from a pyrite body, you know, is there a formation process behind it that is, is recognised in the parlance? Um, I'm only smiling because you're the geologist and I'm not the geologist here. And so I'll probably give you an answer that I'm sure somebody's going to tell me is not the right answer. Uh, but as I understand it, it could be um, one of those sort of sedimentary deposits. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not the expert in, in this area. Uh, the, the main comment that I wanted to make is that Broken Hill is very famous for the lead zinc silver deposits known as a Broken Hill sort of mineralogy, we are different. And because we're west, we're the start of the next geological sort of um, deposit area. And our materials or minerals run west from our place through the south of New South Wales, South Australian border. And so our geology is different to the Broken Hill line of load, being that 20, 25 kilometres west. And so we've got this pyrite in our deposit, which hosts cobalt. Um, it hasn't been weathered, so the cobalt hasn't migrated away. If it had more rain there over the last you know, few hundred million years, then all the cobalt would have leached out and it would have disappeared. But because of that arid environment, the pirate hasn't weathered and it's retained the cobalt. And it's sedimentary hosted, so it's laterally continuous. Um, uh, I, I wasn't thinking of going down this line of questioning, but um, I, th I think your resources are 81 million tonnes of which 65% are in measured indicated. Um, but you're actually, if you, um, and, and then from within that measured indicated, you're gonna to have to define a reserve, which will probably be smaller still. Um, so you're gonna to have to do quite a lot of exploration to get 6 million tons for 17 years in reserve. Is, is, is this resource yes. laterally extensive enough for you to be confident that you're gonna be able to do that? We've got just over 125 million tonnes in all of the categories, so MII, so measured indicated inferred. Uh, but you're right in terms of the measured indicated. One of the questions that we need to always address as a junior mid company uh, raising money from the stock exchange is how do we best deploy our capital? Should we do a lot of drilling to turn a lot of the uh, mineral resource into a reserve or do we um, have a strategic view on that? Our strategy is to have at least the first five, six, seven years as proven category. And then every five years, we would try to roll that forward in a sense. And so we would do more drilling and bring the next five to seven years in 
by the time that we sort of start start the operation. Otherwise, we would end up overcapitalizing and yeah. spending a huge amount of money drilling, but not really getting much further return on that capital. Um, so that gives you a bit of an insight into our thinking around that. It, I appreciate uh, in terms of the numbers, we could bring all of it into reserve, but it would cost us quite a few uh, million dollars to do that. And I'd rather spend that money on the pilot and demonstration plan and the feasibility study that we're doing at the moment. Completely agree. I, do, I just wasn't aware that you had as the extra um, inferred resource out the side, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> just f- you, you say that it's either pyrite or it's not pyrite. Um, and you said that you, I'm just trying to get my head around um, the, the process of concentration. So it's it's clearly, if you're just crushing and screening, the pyrite must be quite coarse-grained um, to, to liberate, first of all. And then how are you doing the separation? And remind me of the concentration factor again. It was, it was 6 million tonnes of ore going down to, was it 1 million tonne of pyrite? Uh, uh, 1 million tonne of ore. Um, they're just sort of average numbers, but it's very close to 6 million tonne of ore going down to 1 million tonne of concentrate. We're going through a crushing process. I'm hesitant to use the word milling, um, but some people may say milling. We're trying to get our top size down to one mil or just over one mil as our top size. So we're working through a number of different equipment options to get to that. But really that's a crushing duty rather than a milling duty. We're not talking 100 micron, we're talking 1000 micron, one millimeter particle size. At that top size, the P80, so the, the 80% passing is around six to 700 micron, 0.6 to 0.7 of a mil. We find that the pyrite grains, partly because they're so old, partly because of obviously the geology, but the age of it and all of that sort of stuff and the very low weathering, the typical pyrite grain size is around that 600 to 700 micron size, so very large coarse grain pyrite. Obviously, there's a distribution there, but that's the core of it. So we're able to work through our process like we did in the previous studies and crush it to that one mil, put it over the gravity spirals as you would for the mineral sands process and have that beautiful separation where pyrite has a specific gravity of close to five and the albite silica quartz is closer to two or two and a half. And so you get a, a fantastic stream on your gravity spiral with this golden pyrite in the heavy in the heavy section and the lights all move out to the side. And when I did my very, very elementary entry-level um, mineral processing course, I was um, very few facts stuck in my head, but one um, point I did was that you typically have to crush down to uh, your average grain size or half your average grain size um, to get the uh, liberation that you require. But is, is that, yes. does, that hold, yes. does that hold here? Yes and no. Uh, yes, we obviously have to crush a bit below the, the typical grain size for the liberation. But what we're finding, and it may be a feature of the fracturing, if I couldn't call it that, as we put it through the crusher, we find obviously sulfides are generally softer than the uh, silicas or, or the, the albites and quartz. And so when we are crushing it down to that one mil, Uh, we find that the sulfides themselves are a little bit finer and more like four or 500 micron, whereas the overall bulk is at that six to 
to 700 at P80. And so you're correct, but it's hidden in the fact that you've got softer and harder materials um, as the two binary you know, pieces going in. Okay, great. Um, and so you can use big equipment and you can just get loads of spirals and you can crush it relatively simply. Do you go down to, do you, do you um, well, the high pressure grinding rolls or um, is it going to be a... Yeah, we're evaluating um, HPGR, high pressure grinding rolls. Uh, we've been evaluating whether we can use a inverted commas modified sag mill. So the HPGR would be dry, a sag mill would be wet, but obviously sag mills are typically paired with a bore mill going all the way down. So to keep that coarseness, we have to do quite a bit of screening work or cycloning work. So that's exactly one of the option studies that we're looking at in our feasibility says what's the best scenario of equipment for the crushing or, or the milling duty, uh, as not use that word, but to, to get it down to that uh, particle size. Great. And then once you've got your, um, your clean pyrite con, then you go into all the fancy stuff, the, 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 the chemistry kit. Um, um, so just, just on that resource, you said that when the, the new resource update uses a um, 275 ppm cobalt equivalent cutoff. Is that because, how, how, how does that work? Is that a kind of a gradation of the, of, of the, the pyrite distribution or is it, uh, what are the boundaries of the deposit like? Or is it internal waste? <laughs> You've covered a few different aspects there for the mining. Um, I'll start with the first one, is that when we approach the deposit, if you think of coming in from the two sides, left and right, top or bottom, whichever way, if you're coming in from this side, uh, effectively you've got zero cobalt, 10 ppm cobalt, 20 ppm cobalt, and then immediately when you're in the sulphide, it's 200, 300 ppm. That's the yep. boundary margins of it. And over the last three or four years, we've been... You know, optimizing our flow sheet and so on and the mining studies at 270 cutoff ppm or 300 equivalent ppm that's essentially taking all of the mineralized sulfide deposit yeah once you move two or three meters out there's just the pyrite's gone it's, it's so low you're down at 20 30 ppm so we're effectively taking as much of the material as we can internal dilution is very very low because once you're out of that oxide zone and you're into the sulfide, then it's consistent all the way across to the other side, left to right, north to south, east to west. It's just one big mass. Um, I was on another meeting and somebody sort of described it um, as a little bit like one of a, a coal deposit. You either have coal or you don't. In this case, you have the sulfide or you don't. We're not worried about internal grades or dilution or ranges. It has hosts the sulfide, it hosts the pyrite. Take it, put it in the plant, make the concentrate. Fantastic, thank you. Much clearer now. Um, and is there cobalt grade variation within the pyrite seam? And I understand now why you're calling it reef no, seam. I, no, I kind of, I... no. So the, the, the mineralization is that we have pyrite mineral. There's some cobalt substituted for the iron in that actual crystal lattice at a very small percentage. So pyrite, FeS2, one atom of iron, two atoms of sulfur. What we find in that crystal structure is that a little bit of cobalt has substituted for some of the iron. 
And so the cobalt content of that lattice is exceedingly uh, consistent through the whole deposit. The only thing that varies is the quantity, how many grains of pyrite per you know, cubic meter or BCM, uh, how many grains of pyrite do you have? Because every grain of pyrite has the same quantity of cobalt. Oh, interesting. So it was a, it was um, syngenetic. It was as the, as the pyrite was forming, there was cobalt in the solution and it just right across. It's that consistent and it's the nickel consistent and the, um, yeah, so the, the nickel is the only other kind of value metal in there, isn't it? Yes. So um, our ratio roughly is six or seven cobalt to one nickel. So, you know, uh, it's, it's six or seven times more cobalt than nickel. If we just jump in terms of the numbers, we're aiming to produce three and a half thousand tonne of cobalt a year as various chemicals and so on, but three and a half thousand tonne of cobalt content. The nickel is only going to be 500 tonne of nickel. Yeah. So pretty much a seven to one ratio. Um, yeah. with it, within the overall global deposit, there are small sections where there might be a little bit of zinc or a little bit of copper or a little bit of manganese, um, but they're so little now and it's been interesting this year as we've done our pilot plant, we actually have never run those trace metal removal circuits because we just didn't have the quantities that we thought before our last drilling program. Uh, we just thought that there might have been more of those trace metals. And as we've uh, developed our resource, we've now uh, completed a sort of a major resource update recently and the trace metals just aren't, aren't there in quantities at all. And when you're speaking to customers, people who are buying the, um, the mixed hydro hydroxide product or the, the sulfate at the end, they're going to be really, really sensitive to any impurities, aren't they? I mean, whether it's copper or zinc or chlorine or fluorine yes, or whatever, whatever. Yeah. The cobalt sulfate is the most sensitive because that's the material that goes directly into the battery precursor chain. So they would buy cobalt sulfate, mix it with nickel sulfate, manganese sulfate, lithium, and so on. So that one is very, very high purity cobalt sulfate. The intermediate, the mixed hydroxide, um, the tolerance on the trace metals is uh, half a percent or one percent. So you can easily sell a hydroxide with 1% zinc or 1% manganese. Now we're below that, but I'm just giving you sort of the typical specs of what the market is acceptable on that. And um, are you aiming to provide products, um, cobalt um, sulfate to a, a variety of different customers? Or are you, uh, I mean, I've, uh, I listened to the last uh, interview with, with Matt and, Joe was talking about kind of half a gigafactory. Does that mean that you're aiming, are your conversations about providing half a gigafactory worth of cobalt to one uh, partner, or are you talking to having the possibility of having to produce um, cobalt sulfate for five or six different customers or a number of customers? Look, I'll, I'll give you the, the answer at this point in time, which is that we're happy to entertain whoever comes to us and, and we can negotiate off-take agreements with. But uh, a more serious answer is that um, we're currently in a process at the moment where we're uh, evaluating opportunities for project partners to come into our project at the project level. Um, and as part of that, obviously, off-take is a big discussion point. Um, and so I can really give you a better answer probably this time next year 
But at this stage, certainly we're, we're talking through a number of options there. The advantage of a single supply is that then we could marry the needs and the capabilities for the trace metals because every plant, as you can appreciate, every EV manufacturer or the battery guys behind that have their own chemistries. And so some are a little bit more tolerable to higher levels of, say, calcium, some are lower levels of, say, sodium and so on. So we could really tailor that if we had a single offtake. If you have multi-offtakes at this point in time, we, across the world, there's no agreed specification. So yeah. there's a lot of discussion around that. Um, in, in, the, in the con series that I've been doing, uh, for crux, one of the things I talk about is the the specific contract requirements of specialty metals, which are not traded on a terminal exchange, and this is this is a perfect case of that, which um, gives you a competitive advantage if you can produce the right thing, but also is is quite tricky because you've got to exactly match your your offtake um, requirement. How quickly? Or how sensitive is the process? I mean, when you're sitting um, in, in your Wizard of Oz booth with your levers and things, you know how um, how easy is it to tinker with the output, or is that going to be apparent? Is that going to be more apparent during the course of the demonstration plant as to how sensitive the process is tailoring the back end product? I'll answer that, but I'll just give you ten seconds of introduction to get to my answer. As I was saying before, where we have this massive sulfide deposit, and when we go through the concentrate process, we make a concentrate essentially with a fixed cobalt, irrespective of what was fed in through the front door. So mm -hmm. my point here is that we have our first um, leveler for variation. So once we've dug it all out, and maybe there are variations in the ground, so that comes out, goes through the concentrate circuit, we get a very consistent concentrate, at roughly half a percent cobalt. That's our concentrate. Once that then goes through the plant, the first stage of our plant is a kiln where we're taking the pyrite and we convert the pyrite to pyrotite. So we're evolving some of the sulfur that comes off and is collected and turned into sulfur prill. So we make a pyrotite. That pyrotite is then prepared before we go to the leach circuit uh, through a magnetic separator because pyrotite is magnetic and gain material is non-magnetic. So what we feed to the leach circuit is reasonably clean pyrotite. Yes, it's been prepared through the kiln, but it has less of this um, gain material silicas and, and so on. So by the time we've gone through that, that's our second great leveler for variability. So I've had two big ones, once a concentrate, once then the kiln operation. Then we feed it through the leach circuit. Our next leveler, is the fact that we make the mixed hydroxide. All of our cobalt will go through that mixed hydroxide stage. And that's where we recover the nickel into that too. And if there's trace amounts of copper and zinc, we can keep those out or we can put them yep. in the MHP. But essentially the MHP is our third leveler. Then yep. we get to the answer to your question. We can sell MHP or we can make cobalt sulfate. Our overall capital costs at the moment, around 10% of our capital estimates, is tied up with that MHP to cobalt sulfate refinery. We can turn that on, we can turn it off, we can sell MHP, we can make cobalt sulfate. So it's only at that very small end, we're now talking you know, uh, 10,000 tonnes of mixed hydroxide going into the plant. 
the mixed hydroxide being 30-35% cobalt going into a plant to refine into cobalt sulfate. The cobalt sulfate is just under 21% cobalt. So you go from 10,000 tonnes of MHP to just short of 17,000 tonnes of cobalt sulfate because of the grade variation. And so now you're at a very small chemical refinery, very clean, I'll say high-tech, but very clean chemical refinery. You're not at a minerals processing plant, which is yep. all that front end to make the MHP. So that gives us great advantages. And yes, we can tailor it. But my, what I'm stressing here is that that's at a very small scale. It's easy to do that. It's just a few tonne a day of material being processed. It's easy to tweak that uh, versus the whole mining and the minerals processing side. Thank you. It's a, a, a very uh, accessible mineral processing flow sheet that you've talked me through. Um, <clears throat> yes. Which, um, when I looked at the, very briefly looked at the financial models or the kind of the outputs from the, um, the, the, your, the Cobalt Blue is putting out, the IRR is quite low. So it's an after-tax IRR of, what is it, 19%, I think. Um, <clears throat> and that indicates that this is a kind of a tight margin um, business, which can run for a long period of time. And that's fine. I, can, I understand that. But um, in your test work of this year, you've done four kind of major batches. Has there been variability in terms of recovery and cost? And if so, kind of what, can you explain some of the complexity or the variability around that? Sure. So um, I'll just take you back a little bit to your comments around IRR. Uh, the, the numbers are right, not 19% um, post-tax. Uh, our challenge is uh, effectively to raise the capital and get into business our all-in sustaining cash cost for the cobalt sits around $12 US per pound of cobalt, uh, which on our understanding is in the bottom quartile of cost production profiles. So they're a little bit meaningless given that almost all cobalt is a byproduct. So a cost profile for that, that's very difficult to evaluate depending on copper price or nickel price. Uh, but effectively, we're in the very bottom quartile for production uh, very high margin in terms of today's cobalt price is sitting around 25, 26, 27 US dollars per pound, so high margin, uh, but it's the capital burden to, to get us into production. Uh, so turning to your question, in terms of the operating side, um, obviously in terms of the pilot, nothing has been optimised, but so far we haven't seen anything to change our view around the overall metal recoveries from in terms of our total project from in the ground to product, we're roughly 85% recovery of cobalt with the major loss of cobalt being through the concentrating circuit due to either poorly liberated material or agglomerates or things like that. Uh, but essentially that's, yeah, half our losses are, are through there. Um, five, six, 7% of total cobalt is lost in the concentrate circuit. The rest of the losses are an accumulation of soluble losses or deportment of cobalt to some of the residues and so on. Uh, we haven't really seen any change from that in terms of our pilot work. In terms of the costs, our major cost input is the for the processing plant is the power. Uh, nearly 20% of our um, costs are power related and we haven't seen anything that's going to change our power consumption. But pleasingly, 
because we're in Broken Hill, we can source all of our power from the National Energy Grid. Um, and with greater uptake of renewables, greater stability in that network through the east coast of Australia, uh, the four projections for the grid price are yeah, substantially lower today than they were two years ago or five years ago, and they're projected to drop even more by the time we come into production. So we're very pleased to say that, yes, our OPEX is going to be different when we're running, but hopefully, particularly on the power side, that's out of our hands, but it's trending down. Um, the other inputs to our process being chemicals, we're very low on chemical requirements. That's inherent to the um, chemistry set or the technology that we've chosen. We're power heavy on power, but low on chemicals. So there's less variability on that side. Thank you. And, and lucky you having your um, uh, energy costs predicted to fall. It might be offset by the diesel used for the trucks, though, as that's um, getting more and more expensive. But, uh, <laughs> um, but <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, I've already mentioned one of our option studies in the feasibility study. You've just touched on probably our one of our biggest option studies is trying to work out where in the revolution of uh, electrification for mine vehicles, where do we sit? Are we going to be a bit too early or are we just in time to take advantage of that? Um, but that's certainly a very big area that we're trying to focus on at the moment is thinking through our mine fleet. And um, as you could appreciate, if you electrify your mine fleet, generally you'll go to slightly smaller trucks. That has the added benefit of smaller ramp widths, so less out of ore development. And we've been doing some option studies around what would that look like, adding another truck or another two trucks, but cutting your ramp widths. Those are the sorts of scenarios that we're going to be running next year. Good stuff. Well, I think that pretty much covers, you know, we've um, pretty much covers the the questions that I had in my mind for the kind of the technical process. So in a sense, what uh, the, 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 the key uh, next steps for the company will be sorting out the, uh, the, the demo plant, getting that into steady state. And then you've got this ongoing process, which started, I think, in April last year of, of looking for partners and um, a partner to to source the capital or to kind of co-fund the construction. Um, are those the kind of the, the key news elements, the drivers for the company in the in the medium terms, the, the demo plant and the capital solution or the customer tie-ups? Yes. So we really have uh, four big things that we're working on. Uh, you've mentioned um, some of those already. So one is the demonstration plant, box sample demonstration plant. Uh, that's our big sort of ticket item with with the majority of our staff working on that over the next um, six, nine, um, ten months or something. It's meant to finish around the middle of next year. Uh, so that's the, the cornerstone for our overall feasibility study. So number one is our demonstration plan. Number two is completing our feasibility study. We're aiming to do that um, towards the end of 2022, start of 23. Uh, we're just working through our tender process at the moment for our feasibility study engineering team. So the third party engineers uh, will be announcing that soon. Um, but there's a, a, a group of those that we're working through at the moment. We've commenced the environmental impact study um, on ground studies. So the um, actual site specific hydrogeology and surface waters and flora and fauna and heritage and cultural studies, those sorts of things. Uh, so we're progressing that. Um, that's looking to uh, go to the regulatory bodies towards the end of next year as the EIS submission. 
um, and then that'll take a number of months to, to go through the approvals process. Uh, so those are some of the study things that we're doing. Out of that will come material for offtake negotiations or discussions. And in conjunction with that, then that also feeds the project partner and the overall sort of project financing uh, package. We're going to be looking to do the financial investment decision, so FID, in first half of 2023. I'm not going to be too specific. I'm sure it's going to change a bit, but around that time. But we realise it, it takes a long time to build the networks and the relationships for the credit, uh, for the equity, for the offtake. Uh, all of those things takes a long time to put in place because you need all, all of them to be comfortable with one another due diligence to be completed. So we started that early in some respects, but we're just in that building relationship stage and trying to work out uh, which groups are interested and then bring those closer and closer uh, over the next 18 to 24 months. Andrew, thank you so much. Um, I've got a much clearer idea now of uh, what your company's about and what the, um, the plans are for the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Um, <clears throat> I think let's leave it there for now. Um, Perhaps we can get you back on once the demo plant is up and running, maybe in kind of um, three or four months um, or, or four or five months. Um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, enjoy your evening, what's left of it, and I'll crack on with my morning down this end. Yeah, thank you so much, Merlin. My pleasure to join you today and look forward to catching up again in the new year.